This week on Pot Have Mercy, we're kind of reaching back into the vault and doing some of our favorites. And uh, this week we're going to look at uh, at Rudy Rasmus. We interviewed him. Actually, it was one of the first times we interviewed anyone on location. We went to his coffee shop in the Heights and uh, and sat down with him. Um, and it was just a, a really wonderful conversation. Uh, Rudy's been a friend of mine for a long time. I think since when I first moved to Houston in 97, which you know feels like 100 years ago, uh, someone told me that I needed to meet him. And we connected. He's a pastor at St. John's United Methodist Church. And um, at the time was the, I think the second largest United Methodist Church in, um, in the city uh, and was just doing some amazing things with folks that had been out of church, folks on the street, uh, folks in uh, addiction. He was in the 80s and 90s, had a, had a, um, a ch- children's program for parents or kids that had AIDS. And so he was just in the trenches being Jesus there. And he is, uh, he's not only been a friend, but has been someone that has deeply formed my faith. And so we're gonna look back into this conversation. I hope you love it as much as uh, we did. And I hope that it blesses you as, as much as it blessed me. Um, if you like the podcast, uh, make sure that you like it, that you share it, that you talk about it, that you, um, you sell tickets to it, whatever you gotta do do because uh, um, we're hoping that uh, some of these conversations bless other people. Have a great day. This is Pod. This is Pod. We're on site. This is awesome. Yes. And we, so today we got uh, Rudy Rasmus, pastor of St. John's and man, just great dude involved in a lot of stuff. And we decided what better way we love coffee. So we drink a lot of coffee when we do our podcast and we got some folks that actually send us coffee. They're not advertisers, but they just send us coffee. (laughs) So we thought, how cool would it be to like visit with you here at through good coffee, which is your place. Um, tell us a little bit about through good and kind of what you're doing and tell us about what's going on next door soon. Cause that sounds exciting. First of all, it's good to be with y'all. And, and I'm telling you, um, coffee is something either uh, you uh, love or just drink. And that, that's, what, <laughs> that's what I've discovered. You know, I, uh, I, was, I was actually officing in a coffee shop uh, over the years. Probably seven, eight years ago. Just often, instead of officing at the church, I would office in a coffee shop. So subsequently, I meet all of these amazing young baristas. One talks me into going into the coffee business. And right about the time uh, we finished the building, uh, he be- uh, decided to become a, um, a yoga instructor and left town. So, uh, so I kind of got jumped in uh, pretty much to the, uh, to the coffee game. But this particular building, I actually built um, uh, 40 years ago when I was 24 years old. Um, I just kind of moved to Houston, started buying real estate. Uh, they were the go-go years, uh, 1980, when Houston was still like growing and, and emerging. And this neighborhood was actually the neighborhood I grew up in. It was a um, sort of a transitioning black neighborhood. And I just, you know, um, built a, um, a daycare center. This building was originally a daycare center, uh, kind of as a, a Robin Hood venture. Because I was doing some like crazy shit down the street and I said here I just did a uh, um, uh, a business that could could help my neighborhood 
So we did free child care uh, mm. here for many, many years. Uh, and um, about mm, eight years ago, I decided to go in the coffee business. Um, took me a, about two years to renovate the building. And five years ago, we got opened. And from that point forward, it's been it's been been a blast. Though I I, uh, I, I like it, you know. Um, it's uh, I think it's probably the most expensive hobby, you know, I've ever <laughs> ever ever had. And what is it? Somebody say you can't justify a passion. You can't justify <laughs> yeah, it. It doesn't make no. any sense. A boat. No, you just do it. <laughs> yeah. But owning a coffee shop. Yeah. shop. <laughs> but, you know, it started out as a, a well intent and like well intended yeah. venture because my original. Uh, concept was to uh, create a coffee shop that created jobs for young people who uh, you know who were hard to employ mm. but I ended up with uh, uh, creating jobs for young people period and so all of the folk who work here are probably 40 years younger than me keeps really- you young yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. It's a- so the Heights is interesting. I think I, I, we were talking about it a little bit before, but my daughter got married in April, and they live like one or two blocks from here. And so it's just interesting how much more I come to the Heights now than I used to. Because yeah. <laughs> like, if you want to see them, if they move out, man. When the kids get married and they move out, it's like they're gone. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, if it floods, come to the Heights. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. It doesn't flood over here. Yeah, it's the highest to- point in Houston. Crazy, yeah. and, and it's and, uh, the the thing, the thing about heights that people don't know Houston. I mean, it's I mean we have so many different like areas and pockets mm-hmm. and neighborhoods that have like their own. We're kind of insulated over on the West Side Memorial because it's kind of like country club, you right. know, <laughs> area of Houston. But when you come to the heights, it's alive. There's bars and restaurants. And, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a little uh, tiki lounge, Lalo. You ever been there? Lalo. Mm. It's a tiki bar. Okay, because it's one way. They, they just opened a new one called uh, Tequila. Tequila, a block away. Tiki, a tiki yeah. drink. It's a block from here. All right. Yeah. Yeah. See, that, that kind of stuff is so cool to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now, you just bought next door. Right next door, yeah. Right. And we're, um, I was looking up, because Through Good is here on, uh, what's the street? Where West 27th. West 27th. Mm-hmm. But next door, you just bought this. And t- what are you going to do there? Yeah, we're going to do uh, the Creole Tea Room. It's a uh, kind of a a take on, um, so it's going to have a sort of a New Orleans vibe, um, uh, uh, fried chicken and beignets, and uh, a couple of sandwiches, a couple of poor boys, but primarily uh, jazz on the weekends. That's awesome. You know, brunch on, uh, kind of a jazz brunch, Saturday yeah. Sundays, and uh, but real, you know, at night it's going to go hard. Uh, we're going to do wine. Uh, I tell my friends all the time, my, uh, my Baptist friends, that, you know, you know Jesus' first miracle. Keeping a party going. Keep, keep the party going. So, so yeah. And I think there was jazz at that wedding. I think it was. But, uh, but, but yeah. So we, we're going to, uh, one, one of the, the goals is to feature some uh, black vineyards, uh, some black-owned vineyards. That's awesome. Uh, from around the, around the country. That's great. And, uh, um, for instance, here, we, uh, um, uh, the roasters uh, are people of color, which is, uh, you know, kind of different for coffee. Uh, coffee is very... Uh, hard to enter as a uh, uh, as an industry for people of color, uh, primarily because there there are no no pathways. You know uh, there are very few uh, black-owned shops um, around the country. Uh, very, very primarily because it's uh, the margins are really tough and and it's very expensive to get into. 
What does it get into roasting? Is that a, that's expensive too? That's an expensive proposition. You got to I mean, know what you're doing on that too. And you got to know coffee, you know. And the and to to know coffee, you you have to uh, actually get certain certifications. Hmm. Those uh, those classes uh, are expensive and time consuming. Yes. Of which very few people have an opportunity to, you know, to to do that. So. So either you, you get sort of jumped in by experience or you, uh, you find another job, you know. But, but rarely do, do, do people of color end up in the coffee trade. Just very few. Since, since I've known you, you've had your hand in a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've, uh, you've got, but it all has connection to people. Yeah. It all has connection to this kind of deep sense of betterment of other folks. Um, um, in your own interest as well, you know. I mean, you have interest in these things, but there always seems to be this kind of output of, of of people. And you've been in this area in the Heights. You've had like roots. Your root system and mm-hmm. has been in this area for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I went to elementary school a block away from this uh, coffee shop, <laughs> um, and I went to junior high um, uh, eight blocks away on the in the other direction, Hamilton over on Hamilton, uh, 20th and Hikes. But, um, but for the most part, you know, I have, um, so, so my spiritual gift is hanging out. It really is. It's a uh, great gift to have. Sure. My spiritual gift is aggravation, but <laughs> you know what, I think hanging out's better. You know what? You're right, man. It is. <laughs> you're, you're right, you man. But anyway. I'm a pain in the ass. That's my spiritual gift. <laughs> but, uh... uh it's a, anyway, uh, hanging out is a great me spiritual guard, gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like the biblical gift of encouragement, hanging out, it encouraging is. people. So, so yeah, <laughs> but uh, but it, you know, I've been, you know, I, I, I love people. So, so, uh, so ministry um, uh, has always kind of intersected uh, with business in and around that area, um, and and the stuff that we've done down downtown uh, at St. John's. Over the last thirty years, man, this is year thirty. Wow, for us, um, has has really just intersected um, around um, um, uh, social justice from a um, uh, from a um, sort of a community support standpoint, you know, and you know, so for instance, we're building housing downtown, and we have been for about sixteen years now, uh, getting ready to build. Our fourth and fifth project uh, uh, this coming year, and uh, and then our distribution stuff, uh, the bread of life. Uh, we um, we have a uh, um, sort of a new partner since Hurricane Harvey, uh, Procter and Gamble, and wow. uh, they give us between three and four million dollars worth of product a year. But uh, but but pretty much always, Matt. You know, it uh, it connects in and around how how we can be present to people. You know. That's, um, I think that's one thing, um, uh, you know, as, a, as an extrovert, um, I didn't know how ministry would work out. Um, uh, but when I uh, ultimately came to this work, it, it dawned on me that, uh, okay, so this is basically uh, a party with a, with a definitive cause. You know, and that's kind of how yeah. it's been. 
And, and just to watch the folks that you affected, I mean, a, a lot of my friends who kind of kind of came through St. John's really yeah. consider you and your wife to be kind of their 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 godparents, yeah. you know, spiritual godparents. And just the the depth of those folks, the breadth of what they're doing in the world now, and a lot of that root system kind of comes back to the seeds that you and Juanita kind of both nurtured and cultivated and poured into them and you know i mean so you've got you've got your fingers in everywhere but those fingers and what you're cultivating has uh has borne a lot of fruit thank you man is you know the um um the work in and of itself has has been a kind of a labor of love um but i've probably felt like quitting every year over the last seven uh and at least once lately. <laughs> I think Johnny lately. Yeah. At least at least once. And I'm uh and I'm thinking, you know, e- even now um uh I'm looking at most of it in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Um but but even more so thinking what can, you know, what's on what's on the road ahead uh yeah. in life. You know, my uh, my wife um uh, often ask me a question and and the question is what would you love um, not who but what and and at the core uh, at the answer of that the answer to that question is um, kind of where where I'm going next you know um, I try not to do anything that I don't want to do you know that's in ministry that's in life if it if it's, if I feel obligated, it ain't gonna work out, mm. you know, because I'm destructive in that in that term. But uh, yeah. but really, just kind of thinking now, um, where where can, you know, where, what where will love take me, you know, on this next next part of my journey? So your wife Juanita, mm-hmm. who's also pastor co-pastor with you at mm-hmm. St. John's, I read she just wrote. For the Houston Chronicle, wasn't there a series of little uh, oh, reflections, yeah. right? Yeah. And her, but one of them was a lady who said, I, "I'm never, I'm never going to wear a bra." A bra again. Yeah. Remember that one? <laughs> ditching the bra. <laughs> she says, "I'm ditching the bra." She owns like a, a farm, at, like makes a goat dairy farm or something. She yeah. goes, "Yeah." She goes, "So if you don't like it, with me walking around with no bra, that's your problem." But I'm not going to do anything ever again that I don't want to do, Is and I don't wear a bra. No, yeah, she's just yeah. like yeah. she goes, "Just bras no. are painful, and I'm not going to do it anymore." because yeah. uh, I don't have to. Yeah. And if you don't like it, that's your fault. It yeah. made me think of that because not only did Wa- that was not Juanita's uh, article that she wrote, but it was someone well, they that used wrote Juanita's it. picture. They heard <laughs> <a> picture <laughs> next to that I'm ditching the bra. I say, baby, what was the title? You know, this. It was because it was several different authors that wrote little six. snippets. It was right. Six of, yeah. I said, what was the total of your piece? She said it was. Such, I said, well. Beside your picture is ditch, I'm ditching my bra. <laughs> That's so good. You need to frame that. You need to frame that, man. But uh, but yeah, you know she 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 wrote two books during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, one uh, entitled "Learning to Be," and the other is uh, uh, about being an, a one on the Enneagram uh, scale. Mm. She's a one, and uh, ones are intense rule followers, uh, and and people who like organize their lives around around all of the the rules and then she marries me <laughs> who could give a shit 
Yeah. Who's a big rule breaker? <laughs> what's what's the free spirit one? Uh, seven. What are you? I'm an eight. eight. You're an eight. Yeah, I'm an eight. You're an eight. I would I would figure you're an eight. It's a, uh, um, you know, um, you know, being, you know, Martin Luther King was an eight. Mm. Um, I think I knew that. And and I think the challenging, you, you know, the overall the overarching challenge of being a kind of kind of an eight on the scale is um, uh, we we challenge just for challenge sake not not always you know for the right reasons necessarily but our, our challenge convention um, which you know as a Methodist minister uh, my journey has been challenging for a lot of people. Well, when you're in a system that tries to put you in a box, eights don't like to be put in a box. Eights don't like to be put in a box. They don't like and to be controlled. Right. You know. And it makes it difficult from a uh, <clears throat> from a very s- systemic standpoint as it relates to the church itself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, well, and you've also been a prophetic voice out of your eight into the system. Yeah. You know, as well. You've been something that has not gone away and it continued to raise the flag saying there's a different way that we can do this. To do this. You know. And a counter-narrative to, you know, I just think about kind of the ways that you've held yourself within our own kind of um, conference. Yeah. You know, and, and the way that you've, um, you've preached, you've led, the, the issues you've brought up around both kind of uh, whether that's race or poverty or even in the, uh, during the AIDS kind of Peace. crisis, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, you know, you know in the, uh, I think on the, on the whole timeline, um, you know, we started with homelessness, uh, moved to uh, added addiction, um, um, and HIV, mostly around the same time in the early 90s. Um, and then uh, uh, our work around um, LGBTQ inclusion, I think, has probably cost us more. <clears throat> Than any of the issues that we've embraced along the way. When you say cost more, what do you mean? Uh, financially and the church, uh, yeah, and relationally, we've, we've probably had ten thousand plus people leave uh, the church because of my position on uh, LGBTQ inclusion. That, that would typically kill it. Yeah. Most churches. <laughs> yeah, thirty thousand have joined over the last thirty years, and at least ten thousand have left because of that. Uh, my position on that issue. I think I think the, the lightning rod uh, when Anise Parker was mayor, uh, she uh, um, uh, attempted to enact the Hero Ordinance, the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. That was and around, uh, what was that around? Bat- hmm? What the Hero Ordinance was around? Around uh, uh, inclusion, um, and and the uh, the opposition of that ordinance, basically. Um, uh, focused on there were 14 categories of, of people who were being represented in this in this ordinance. Uh, the opposition focused on exclusively the trans uh, community as the, from the, from a marketing standpoint, and it was really unfortunate uh, because the um, the ordinance was defeated, uh, uh, which really meant a lot of people. Uh, uh, to this day, can still be discriminated against in public in public spaces, uh, but but you know you know there were there were folks who who came to me and said I just can't you know I, 
I, you know, I don't agree with you, and I can't be a, uh, and I can't be part of that, um, part of that, 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 uh, that experience. You know, yeah. One of the things that's interesting to me is, of course, to tell 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 people a little bit about when you went to St. John's, and kind of how that got started. I, I, I know that I actually came to a. Uh, a thing here and I don't remember what year it was it was in the mid 90s it was like a school of congregational development or something and you and Juanita were speaking at a class or something I can't remember and mm-hmm. I went to it only thing I ever remember about that was you talking about how um, how you fired people yeah you thanked them I thanked them right. remember that <laughs> I've, I've used that yeah. I stole that straight from you I'm like I didn't even know who this guy was but I went to this class it's like, and he's like yeah we just you know I just bring him in and just thank yeah. him thank yeah. him for being here but Maybe. anyway yeah. so if you ever do that if you ever walk into my office in that, yeah, come really on, on thank you come on in here. I just want to thank I'm you like, darn it I just always loved the way you talked about it so hey it's, it's, not the, it's nothing bad I just want to thank you for what you've done but you know thank yeah. you we're done but tell people a little bit about the story of St. John's because you, I mean, you go in there and it growing, like you say, and being through all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I'd like to hear a little bit, because I know you've been involved in conversation and written and reflected on this, of what it's like to be a black man in a predominantly white denomination. Yeah. Uh, and that might be where you just want to land instead of the St. John story. But I think the St. John story is yeah. fascinating. Well, you know... Um, I've really never, um, you know, Methodism is interesting. Uh, United Methodism, um, uh, first of all, it's a, it's a unique community that, uh, you know, and, and I often say the, uh, the tent was big enough for me. Um, unlike many uh, expressions or denominations. You know, uh, so for instance, my the including me in and of itself uh, meant that the tent was either had some uh, some extension poles, all right, or uh, it was a uh, it was an expression that uh, that had enough enough wiggle room, yeah, to uh, to include the uh, the other uh, one one with a different perspective. I think the challenge that the denomination challenge that the denomination is facing now is that it's attempting to uh, um, create um, uh, sort of a partition uh, in a big open tent. Um, now, there have been challenging aspects about the entrance to the tent for years. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the things that, that that's going to have to be undone is, um, you know, how the openings, the doorways to the to the tent is or uh, is managed, and and they've got to begin with opening the doorway to everybody from a uh, from uh, an inclusive clergy position, and then from there, you know, we can we can talk about including the rest of the world uh, in this in this movement, but um, but there's pushback, you know, and and that pushback I think is gonna uh, it's gonna change the composition of the tent. It's going to change the uh, the way in which this this um, this denomination has historically made room for folk uh, like me, and 
and I don't think the uh, the end is going to be good. Uh, I, re- I really don't. What I do see, though, you know, and I, I've been telling my, my congregation this for a long time. So the building that we occupy in downtown Houston was a Methodist Episcopal South congregation in its origin. And, and if we, you know, if we do any, any digging in the ME South, uh, you know, history uh, archives, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot of racial uh, division and, and delineation. Uh, but I remind my congregation all the time, the folk that built that building and night that opened it in 1917 started in 1895. All right. That's when the congregation became a suburban church church plant from First United Methodist downtown <laughs> suburban a suburban church plant from from first right you know it if we if we think about how that um you know and I, I tell my congregation all the time i said 100 years ago there's no indication that one day a black guy with a beard like mine would be standing in this spot as the pastor of this church i said in the same way a uh, hundred years from now there's a good possibility it's going to be a white guy that looks like Matt <laughs> right? standing in standing this place yeah. the same way um, with that being said I think um, I think a- attempting to uh, uh, to construct a, uh, um, a path for history is always a mistake and, and that's what the Methodist Church is doing right now attempting to construct a path for its narrative, uh, instead of just opening the damn door and, le- and letting people in. You know, I, I used to, for, for several years, I got with a, uh, a group of the largest, uh, the hundred largest churches. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and I remember once um, telling the convener of that group, uh, I said, you know, I know we're getting ready to, to adjourn, but could I, can I just say something? And, and I think we were in Georgia and Atlanta that, uh, for that particular meeting. And I said, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, um, the, 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 the kind of experience that this group is attempting to curate wouldn't have made room for me and my daddy. Right? I said, and now I'm going to tell you, if you can't make room for me and my daddy, then I think we're going to have a problem. And in that moment, uh, I, I saw that, that, you know, there was a, there was some 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 movement towards at least uh, exp- ad- admitting to the tension that exists. What we can't do, though, is ignore the 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 realities that the world has changed, and and that um, in what less than twenty years it will be a, a majority minority world. I mean, a, a country. And uh, and any attempts at this point to uh, um, uh, to 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 alter that, and that's what ha- what's happening is the, all of these attempts are to alter the inevitable course of this country being becoming uh, a place of diverse color, and um, and I think the Methodist Church's uh, attempt to to legislate that is going to be a. Uh, a, a a, a problem that it won't be able to uh, to sort out or navigate uh, in the in the big picture. It just won't. I know that was a lot, but but I think um, one of my regrets now 
is, you know, as I look, as I look back, um, we should have forced this particular question years ago. And, you know, now's a good, now there's, a, there's no time like the present, but, but this quiet, um, um, subtle, um, um, sexist and racist determination has, has been on the books for quite a while and it just needs to be changed. The 25th, you know, um, having served in Georgia, Oh yeah. Texas, right. <clears throat> South Georgia. South Georgia. Mm -hmm. You know, until 2015, it was easy to say, can't, can't do that anyway. Can't do a wedding. Right. Even if you ask, couldn't do it. Um, and so when that 2015 thing changed, that, that forced, uh, that was a divide. And that was a, what do you call that inflection point? If you will, right. that said, okay, now we have to deal with it. And then look at the way we've had to deal with it. We keep moving, moving it. Yeah. <laughs> and then kicking the ball whew, down. Fortunately, the pandemic came <laughs> and now, you know, they tell, they say to people, it's like, okay, well, we're going to meet in 20 and then 21 and 22. And now they're saying, oh, we probably won't even meet in 22 because who knows if delegates from around the world and Africa and Philippines can even come to the U.S. in 22. We don't know the answer right. to that question. So it's like, might get moved again. And at some point, I, I, I think what needs to happen and what is happening is it's just like coming out of the pandemic. It's kind of self-policing. Yeah. Like we open up and say, okay, if you want a vaccine, you can get one. If you don't want one, and we have some people that don't want one, you know, but they know what the risk is, but right. they can come and they can self-police their own life. Now it's like, if you don't want to be in the United Methodist Church, if you want to stay, you can stay. If you want to be in the United Methodist Church, you can go. Right. They're, they're creating options for everybody. Um, I don't think the United Methodist Church is a perfect church. I think we got a lot of work to do. I don't think bureaucracy but around just issues that we confront in yeah. front of us. We talk about race in our congregation this much, and some people's heads begin to explode. <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously. I, I mean, I had yeah. people mad at me last summer yeah. because we're just beginning to have conversations. And we said, we need to, we'll have a couple of studies around some mm. books around white privilege or this. And man, you would have thought... A freaking yeah, open the door to you know becoming a communist or whatever. I mean, right. it was like alien talk for some people. We had people literally left the church, left the church. Oh wow! I had a guy sent me an email, uh, and he said, you know, take me off the rolls. I'm done with Black Lives Matter, Chapelwood. Okay, wow. You know, you know, John. I would, uh, you know, I've thought about this often, but if I had experienced 400 years of, of, of unchecked privilege, I probably would be a little challenged by the thought of, of losing, losing that, uh, um, uh, that access to, uh, to opportunity, to uh, financial advancement, I, th I think it's human nature uh, to um, um, to fight. Um, um, I guess in the, in many ways to fight being um, in in authority. I mean, it's a privileged position. Um, I think when the uh, 
when the but when it's acknowledged it's a problem as a problem then it has to be addressed and that's where we are today um, you know so so I grew up in Houston grew up in the hikes drank from a separate water fountain hmm. in Houston until I was 12 used the colored only restroom sat in the colored section in, in, in restaurants and on buses and in public spaces never understood it as a kid never understood it but I knew uh, that there was a uh, there was some some uh, there was some unspoken unwritten rule that relegated me to that 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 place the craziest thing though the Houston Public Zoo uh, I had my mom take me to the zoo often and and for one reason uh, because of the lion head fountain in the middle of the zoo when I was a kid they tell me that the lion head fountain is still there I haven't been to the it zoo is. in many it is so so watch this Matt when I was a kid she would take me there. I would I would bypass all of the the animal exhibits. I always made a a direct line, direct path to the Lionhead Fountain. For one reason, it was the only place there wasn't two fountains. There was only one Lionhead, and every kid of every hue lined up to drink from that fountain. And even as six years as a six year old, uh, I was. Um, uh, aware enough to realize that there's something right about this. There's something not right about that other. And I think where we are today is uh, acknowledging those unspoken, uh, um, um, uh, the, the unspoken presence of that, that colored water fountain and that colored only section and that colored restroom, that colored, colored only restroom. And, and I think the dismantling that that is that has taken place. It's just time. I mean, it is, it is, it is time, man. You know, when I, when I think about how, how over all of these years, um, even though it hadn't been a, a, a same section, uh, I mean that you know that thing has been going for 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 a while, but but there are still invisible lines and barriers that that exist, and and I think the church has to be the place that leads change in that area. This is, what, this, is, this is my experience with church. So I came to church to, to the faith later because I never saw the faith as, as powerful enough to make change in, in, the, in the world it existed in. Because here I am, I'm going to the zoo and the folk at the zoo got it figured out. It's one lion here found. I go to the damn church, all right? And, and, and they are telling me you know, in essence, to be a good slave. You know, to, to you know, this this is wrong, but it's the way it is. Yeah. They got it figured out at the zoo, the church. <laughs> so here we are, 2021. All right, it's still figured out at the zoo, but the church is still wrestling with um, with certain sections for gay folk and. <clears throat> you know, really certain sections for black folk and certain sections for white folk and and they call that Sunday morning. Yeah. The yeah. church is I, I think it, the church is reflection of society. Always has been culturally. But I, I mean I think um 
again, this this is just going to sound the way it sounds. I always say that before I say something. I'm just going <laughs> to be honest, right. I have a tendency, and I get myself in trouble. But that's okay. Um, you know, from someone who has grown up in in white church and now really trying to bridge gap, trying to be understanding, mm-hmm. just trying to learn, right? Trying to be open and attuned, right? And recognizing now the people who are <laughs> mad at me, attacking me, even though I'm not anywhere right. near like. I mean, Matt's the one. Matt's the real progressive liberal. I mean, right? I, I mean, lightning Matt, rod. Matt, yeah, Matt's, that's why I brought him in, to be the lightning rod. When we brought him in, there were several people that were like, yeah, he brought Matt in to do the gay weddings. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was, I was like, so, but I, there, there's, a, there's fear. Be there, you, when you, you talk about fear, I remember I've yeah. said this before, Richard Rohr talks about how, um, everything is grief. Everybody's mm-hmm. dealing with grief. And he says conservative type people tend to manifest their grief in, with fear or in fear. Mm-hmm. And more liberal or progressive people manifest their grief in anger. Mm-hmm. Like angry fight, but the fear. Mm-hmm. And I see a society that things are changing. And, uh, you know, you live kind of in a bubble uh, your whole life. And you don't yeah. realize a guy came in my office. He was so mad at me. And he's like, you're buying into all this liberal brainwashing. Right. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, do you, he says, you don't believe in white privilege, do you? I was like, yeah, I think I do. And he's like, well, what, what do you, what does that mean? I said, well, my dad left when I was 14. Yeah. I don't have a safety net. I don't inherit, I didn't inherit any money. I've worked my whole life. I've made my own way. He said, see, that's what I'm talking about. You pulled your, I said, you know what though? <laughs> I've never had any obstacle in my right. life or barrier that I've had to deal with that had to do with the color of my skin. As a matter of fact, I think the color of my skin opened doors, and I didn't learn this until I was an associate at St. Luke's, and I got appointed to St. Andrew in Columbus, Georgia. And I remember a friend of mine who was a, had been a black pastor in South Georgia his whole career, yeah. 40 years. And here I am in my first full-time senior pastor appointment at 27 hmm. yeah. all right, years yeah. old, right? And I'm making like $15,000 more than he is right. at his church, and he's been serving 40 years. Right. And yeah. he's, he's, we were in a, in a meeting, and he just looked at me, he just shared this information. And, you know, in my time, I'm thinking, we well, were just jealous, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and it took, because I was young yeah, and man. stupid, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know any better. And then through the years, I realized, well, when you're in the United Methodist Church, especially if you're in South Georgia, if you're like, James Swanson or uh, Greg Blue or somebody, mm-hmm. there's two churches, you know, or Joe mm-hmm. Robertson. There's South Wilson. Columbus, there's St. Mary's, and there's M.O. Harris. And that's, that's the three churches. Mm-hmm. And all of them pay significantly less mm-hmm. than, than churches that are way smaller than those churches. Right. So you're limited. If you're a black pastor, a black ordained Methodist preacher or licensed, you got like, that's it. There's no upward mobility. Right. There's nowhere for you to go. There's nothing for right. you to do. Whereas for me, there was 600 options, exactly. you know, and every time I moved, I got an increase in my salary. Right. And so it, it was not something that it's something I'm still, I'm, I'm still learning. I think right now the, the thing that I find is people are afraid there's fear and it has to do with all this manufacturing, this outrage and manufacturing right. threats that are not really threats. Right. And they think, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my livelihood. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose whatever. It's made up stuff. Right. And it's just, 
I think in these days we need to get more into the, the, the gospel, more into the life yeah. of Jesus, because if we are more faithful to that, you find a wrestling with all of this stuff that I think we need to wrestle with. Jesus was pretty revolutionary. Um, yeah. And and we have sugarcoated it so much. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guilty of that. You know, it's, I find the easiest. And so when you start to test some of these things, you realize when you push a little in your church, right, it bubbles up and you find out where the outrage comes from. And you find out that there's racism in your congregation. Well, and I, that there's even racism right. in, in, in myself right. of ways that I'm not even aware of and I'm discovering in real time exactly. being confronted with this. I mean, I think that's kind of what, when I say racial recalibration or reset or whatever's going on, there's an awareness and it makes some people are embracing it and willing to learn and grow and other people, man, they're fight, it's that fight or flight kind of mentality. Right, right. You know, I think the, uh, the pandemic has, uh, uh, Pan- the pandemic is going it, to shape a future for the church that the church isn't quite ready for. But, uh, but people, after the last, I guess, year and a half, 18 months or so, of not um, having a building to go to uh, or having to define what faith is, um, external uh, or physical structures, uh, and... Uh, it, it, um, external of existing societal structures uh, that are reinforced by those physical structures. So, uh, so what we're going to really find uh, as we, as we uh, began to reconvene that, um, uh, that more people than we imagined um, were already tired of a lot of the things we had taken for granted. And, uh, and there's going to be a, a shift in, in how convening uh, takes place on the road ahead that will ultimately speak to, um, you know, how privilege really does um, manifest. I think the, uh, you know, the one thing I've noticed from my, from my global travels uh, that we're just starting to experience in the U.S. is that uh, uh, that class uh, is... In, in 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 many ways, um, uh, the next the next frontier of exclusion, um, and and the more we uh, the more we see uh, the world evolve, uh, uh, we're going to see the haves uh, uh, begin to uh, to draw distinctive lines. We've already seen it actually, yeah. and uh, yeah. um, and it's going to be a it's going to be an interesting world. I think I think you know. Uh, the the church has a place in this new world, um, but in order for the church to take its place in this new world, uh, it's going to have to be a bolder expression yeah. than it is right now. I think the church has involved itself in this kind of, like the psychology of the church is almost like, um, um, at least within kind of spheres that 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 I've I've operated in, has helped people to feel good. <laughs> You know, and it and and because of that, it's it's really its dominant narrative is about how do you get out of the world, right? Right. But when you, as John was saying, as you read the Gospels and you see this radical orientation of Jesus to the world that he's in, and the transformation of that world, that really is 
uh, based on the breaking down of all of the barriers and the categories within that culture, right? Yeah. And so when he says you're going to have to hate your mother, father, sister, it really right. is a, a betrayal of the values that you grew up with saying this is how the world operates. Exactly. Right? And so when you begin to follow Jesus, it's as if you're betraying all the other things. Even mother, father, sister, right. brother, right? Exactly. <laughs> and that's the price. That's the price. And so that's a gospel I was never encountered with yeah. kind of growing up. It was really about how do I how do I feel good and then how do I get out of this world right. knowing that you know, I'm going to a better place. Right. Um, which is, is not the gospel. It's it seems like it is it's an anti gospel. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see how how it all shakes. But well we move there's a personal there's this like you know, growing up, it's, it's religion or faith was always this personal, devotional, like in, hyper-individualistic. So you go to these Bible studies, you participate, how does it make you feel? And for Methodists, we always had this social component, which is like Habitat for Humanity. We'll go build right. a house or right. we'll go serve in the soup right. kitchen or whatever else. But I don't know that we tied together the, the social, the way that that faith moves out and socially right. intersects. What mm-hmm. I sense is happening is... There needs, there, there's a lack of, everybody says I'm spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. I mean, man, if I had a dime for every time I heard that, <laughs> I wouldn't know more what it yeah. means, but I would be rich. Yeah. But this, there's a sense where spirituality needs to be addressed in, a, in a more deeply authentic ways. Like we talk about these spiritual practices, yeah. but to help people tie that into like the real world you live in every day. Right. Right. Instead of it being this separated thing. I don't know that we've done a good job with that in, in the white church, particularly because it's been all like you come, you sit, you feel good, you soothe. It's like yeah. Jesus loves you. You go back home. And then when you're at work or when you're in your your politics or whatever else, you know, it, it doesn't impact that. Yeah. And that's been the biggest disappointment for me this past year is how the the political this christian nationalism secularism mm-hmm. where christianity gets tied into politics and partisan political figures and all of that that's really been disappointing for me mm-hmm. uh, because that is not at all can you imagine jesus going around you know wearing a t-shirt that said god loves rome you know right. Yeah, uh, yeah, like yeah. Make, Rome, make Rome make great Jerusalem again, or, or what? No, I mean Rome. I mean Rome. Rome. I mean right. it was like, uh, and I just the fact that we put so much faith in politicians and courts and and institutions. Now, from your experience, I mean, I have the same level of trust in maybe in those things no. that that yeah. that that I have or people that I know have. I mean, they're they're looking like, oh, the president's going to save the country. You know, or whatever. Wow. Not to fifty percent. They don't think so. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, well, you know, it's been really scary this past year. If, if you, uh, but if if you if you as you drill through the uh, the current status and and challenge, I think Ibram Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, um, really um, uh, sort of kind of uh, tracks the sojourn of you know to where we are right now. And uh, and he tells a story that he uh, that he thought ignorance and hatred were sort of the the byproducts the byproducts of racism, uh, you know, for for a large part of his life, only to find out that uh, um, that that the uh, that racist thought uh, was really a byproduct of policy, and policies. Um, 
are at the core of institutional life in every regard. Matter of fact, what we're, what we're talking about right now is uh, a policy in the United Methodist Church that delineates um, an entire people group because of their sexual orientation, uh, sexual identity. Um, without that policy, uh, it's a different world. Um, you know, when we, when we start drilling down in the fact that, you know, that those courts do matter at every level of society, uh, including the, the church court, when we begin to, to, to really uh, you know, see that, that, uh, that these policies are, uh, you know, have been a tool for at least the 400-year sojourn of black folk in America, and, and even before, uh, we begin to see that you know, there, there's, a, there's a whole other picture being painted uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that can be solved by something that's being combated right now, and that's uh, you know, equity uh, on the vote. You know, if uh, if voting voting suppression is a uh, if you know it, w- it wouldn't voting suppression wouldn't be important uh, if the vote didn't really matter in shaping how America runs. Uh, and the same applies for the church. You know, we've got to begin to think about how this book of policies we call the discipline uh, impacts delineates. Uh, and even even discriminates uh, against people because of their uh, their birthright. You know, it's a so so as we as we as we look to the future, um, I think conversations like this uh, will make a difference. Um, I don't think these conversations take uh, happen often enough. Uh, I don't think there are uh, uh, there are enough people with privilege. Uh, willing to uh, risk that privilege uh, for the sake of a conversation like this. Uh, but if it happens more, we have an opportunity to, uh, uh, to encourage more to have a conversation, I believe. And, and hopefully uh, that's what the future holds for all of us. I think it's one of the biggest problems yeah. is you only talk to or at people that already agree with you well, yeah the echo chamber i mean the fact that you know i don't have a problem with someone who only watches cnn or only watches fox or only watches msnbc but what i tell people is if you do you're getting one exactly one thing and you're going to choose which one you want and it's going to reinforce like your worldview that you already believe in so that's it's a relationship algorithm cross I mean, dialogue of you know I, I realized when we went i was a part of a group on the early stages of in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. talking about what does it look like if the oh, denomination yeah. separates, right? <laughs> and you've got this group from, you know, this WCA side, good mm-hmm. news side, and then you have, like, the, the centrist, which I was one of those. So I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and then you had, like, the progressives. And you realized real quick um, the language you use is different. Mm-hmm. You know, the groups want to take and redefine terms. So all of a sudden you've got this the group on the on the right that's now – co-opted orthodoxy right you know yeah. we're orthodox and you're yeah. not right i'm like last i checked i think i'm still orthodox <laughs> right. I mean, right. based on what two thousand years of that word means right but it's still like traditionalist or orthodox or evangelical or all these kind of like we're going to take the words we're going to define them the way we want them and they don't fit you they fit us yeah and i just think you know the the language you know i wonder when when you if you're moving in this direction like 
United Methodist Church ain't perfect at all. Right. But if you move in any of these directions, right, whether it's hard right, hard left, and you become more exclusive, how does it impact things like, um, you know, they say, oh, it's not going to be impactful. But what is, how does it impact things like women in ministry? Right. How does it impact racial issues and right. demographics? How does it impact? Because I can tell you a lot of the people that I know that, that are really like itching and ready to go tomorrow to some new conservative Methodist church, I, I don't know. I don't see a lot of diversity in that. Right. It, it personally, um, politically, uh, racially, um, you know, and they'll, 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 they'll say, well, of course there is. And look at this, this, this. And I'm like, man, when United Methodist Church is already, what, 98% white, isn't it? Exactly. So, I mean, like, you're, if you're going to split and take a right turn, you're, right. now you're going to be 99.9%. I mean, I don't understand, but um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, when you, and you started by right saying, now. like, you grew up in a big tent. Yeah. And that tent included you. Right. Um, and, and, not only, and, and you as a prophetic voice. And I think the, the more we partition the tent, the more voices of prophecy um, that we lose, you know, and the less we become the, the body of Christ effective in the world that, that God loved and right. gave himself to. Here's yeah. what I want to hear from you. Yeah. If, if someone's listening, white pastor in United Methodist Church, what, what can we do? personally, but in our congregations that help progress a better relationship and understanding to make progress in kind of where we need to go, especially around issues of of race. We've been talking a lot about that and other things as well, but around inclusion in race, what I think a lot of people have asked me, it's like, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And it's not, I'm not putting this on you to say it's your responsibility to tell white folks how to figure this out. Yeah. But I do think that if you're going to be open and listen, you need to listen to voices that are not your own that can either challenge or say, open up this or just listen, whatever. I mean, here's an idea. So um, my last book was entitled, I'm Black, I'm Christian, I'm Methodist. Uh, I wrote it with um, nine other writers who are all Methodist clergy, all ages, uh, uh, all gender, and um, all orientation. It was just a very, very diverse group of writers. Uh, and even some were more conservative and progressive, but they were all, all the writers were black. I think, I think a, 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 a good starting point as a, as a, from a Methodist standpoint, a Methodist conversation, uh, would be for uh, non-black congregations to, uh, uh, to read that book. Um, and then um, I think Another step could be um, creating conversation with those authors. Uh, the authors are all over the country and, and uh, are, are very versed in their specific uh, position and, and interest in the, in the church. But, uh, uh, but to create some, some open dialogue around that. Uh, we've done it so far in maybe five annual conferences. And, uh, and from that, I think some good occurred in terms of opening uh, the, uh, the conversation to, uh, to some new thoughts and ideas uh, and to some new possibilities. Uh, you know, but I think that's a starting spot. And then I think uh, there are other steps that could be taken. And I think, you know, uh, Chapelwood has taken, taken those steps uh, through the, uh, the work with uh, Project Curate. But uh, to really uh, create honest dialogue 
uh, amongst people of different uh, different races, um, and and to honor uh, and even respect the the positions uh, of each other. Um, you know, not not a lot of churches have taken taken that on, and uh, um, uh, and I think even you know um, uh, you know I will, I'll say this. I think I think the the black church uh, needs some some introspection uh, as it relates to uh, uh, this issue as well. I don't I don't I, I think uh, so. So I'll uh, this is the lightning rod. Uh, I think in in many cases um, um, we uh, the the black church stopped reading uh, the scripture uh, uh, through the lens of the oppressed. Uh, uh, a while back, and and started looking for uh, um, ways out and 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 uh, and uh, paths to prosperity uh, out of out of scripture. I, I think the um, you know to begin to to look at uh, the um, you know from a black perspective how uh, how scripture um, you know. Diagrams and and even uh, provides uh, uh, paths uh, out of oppression, uh, or or some of the things that you know the the predominantly black church can do. Uh, I think the uh, uh, the predominantly white church can can begin to understand uh, that this has been a uh, that religion has created an oppressive regime uh, that ultimately needs to be overthrown, and 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 subsequently. <laughs> We won't have a uh, if we don't get to the point where we begin to see uh, scripture in a lens outside of what it can do for me personally. Uh, then religion will no longer have a value, and uh, um, and we'll you know we'll be pretty much on our own. Yeah, I think yeah. that's why a lot of people check out from faith. You talk about the fastest growing that's demographic is non-affiliated, non-religious, yeah. you know, and at, and people look at the church, especially young people, and they're like, I don't really want to be a part of that if right. that's what it's going to be. Yeah. And well, so I think churches that intersect in real life and, and start speaking the faith and the gospel in some difficult things. I've always just, just said, too, I've always thought it's about empathy. It's about love. Ultimately, right. it's about love. And all I tell people is like, can you have some empathy for someone who's not like you? Yeah. who's walked in different shoes and had different experiences and can you just listen and put yourself if you're going to have a what do they call that in meaningful conversations or you know meaningful relationship at some point you have to get out of your shoes and put yourself in someone else's shoes best you can you never can walk in their shoes perfectly exactly. but to listen and hear the pain or the uh, the struggle or whatever it is and i just don't know that people want to do it we just have a narcissistic generation and the symptom of narcissism is a lack of empathy yeah for other people you know my my, uh, my definition of love is um, allowing a person to be who are, who or what they choose for themselves without any insistence that they meet my expectations and uh, and I think not until we get to the place where we are willing to uh, accept the person in front of us for who they are just and who they expressed uh, themselves to be, uh, without um, you know really waiting on them to check a box for us, uh, we, we've got some more work to do, and that's 
and that's where we are. Institutional, the institutional church. I think uh, today I'm more spiritual than I am religious. Yeah. And and becoming more spiritual and less religious every day. And I think like defining those terms, right? Like so, it's right. like. People ask me all the time, used to ask me, are you a Christian? And I, I now say, tell me what you think a Christian is, and right. I'll tell you if I'm that. <laughs> right? Because those words are all contested. Right? They're all contested. They're all contested. And so to have a space, and those those have to be done in relationships yeah. that are deeply diverse and are given to each other in a different field and a different plane than what we've got right now. We've imagined this world yeah. that we live in. We can reimagine something different based on the gospel. We just yeah. can't. Yeah, those terms are loaded concepts for sure. Well, thanks. It's good being with y'all. Man, it's good being with you. We'll continue conversations on. I mean, I think having more conversations like this, and I think, you know, one of the things I I like the idea of, I talk about a bridge where there's two lanes, you know, one's going out, one's coming in. And I think too often we talk about, you know, at Chapelwood is a lot of our lanes go out, but we're really talking a lot about what are the lanes coming in that bring voices, that bring experiences into our life together. And I think partnering with churches like St. John's, you know, building relationships where we can have broader conversations to learn, to listen to each other and and be there for each other. There's one thing I always thought about Methodist Church. We're supposed to be connectional and we're so deeply isolated from one another, you know? And we are. We are. Now, now I'll tell you, John, uh, you know, in all sincerity, uh, if you know, if you look at at the way the sort of the world is run, um, the fact is, uh, a lot of tall white guys run run the world. Um, as a tall white guy yourself, you're challenging convention. Okay, um, I think you asked what could be done um, from your position of influence. Uh, I think you're taking a step uh, to help some other people who actually run this thing potentially see a uh, uh, a new opportunity. And I think, you know, uh, what we have to do as humans is help other humans see the benefit of, of uh, inclusion and diversity uh, in the world. Otherwise, it's going to be us and them, you know, and... And, you know, so I commend you. you, you, you you're taking a step. Because, you, dude, you don't have to do this. You know, you don't have to be a part of a conversation that literally uh, challenges the uh, convention in your own congregation. You know? But in doing so, uh, there's, a, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an opportunity that exists on the other side of it uh, that even, even your congregation can benefit from uh, in ways uh, that right now are completely un- unrealized. Yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, keep up the work and keep talking. Thanks for your wisdom. And thanks for hosting us at... Yeah, man. Through good. Through good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate you. Bless you. Well, I'm John Stevens. I'm Matt Russell. Rudy Rasmus. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Yeah.